the real significance of the Sabbath for us is that the Sabbath was a perfect picture of the spiritual rest our souls have found in Christ. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new four-part series titled The Sabbath and the Heart of God. In six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Why was the Sabbath so important? So much so that it's included as one of the Ten Commandments. Well, Tom's passage for this series is in Mark's Gospel, chapters 2 through 3. Throughout this series, Tom will be looking at what Jesus taught his followers about rest. You'll discover the type of rest Jesus invites his followers into, how to receive that rest, and a reminder of the implications it has for your life today. Well, Tom, how might we prepare our hearts today to learn about the Sabbath? I think most Christians completely misunderstand the purpose of the Sabbath. You know, it comes back to the heart of God. It wasn't about rules and regulations intended to oppress us. Instead, for Old Testament Israel, the Sabbath was a gift of God. And it, its reality, the thing that the Sabbath taught, the spiritual lessons at its heart, are for us as well. And there is such richness as we come to understand not only did God intend for us to have this recycling pattern of worship and rest, but he also intended to picture the eternal rest our souls find in Jesus Christ. Join us as we look at the Sabbath and the heart of God. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now here on The Word Unleashed we come back to Mark's gospel and to the study of the life of Christ from the vantage point really of the apostle Peter. Mark was a protege of Peter and as he writes we really see the heart of Peter beating through this account of the life of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite books is a book entitled The Pharisee's Guide to Total Holiness. I don't recommend everything in the book, but I love that title. It provided me at a time in my life uh, when I was in college some real insight into the mindset of the legalistic thinking of some of the people with whom I attended college. A Christian college where I learned a lot of good things, I got a good education, but also came with some baggage, including legalism. In one of my copies on my shelf in my office of this book, The Pharisee's Guide to Total Holiness, is a document that Sheila and I kept from that college. There were a myriad of rules, and if you violated those rules, you received demerits. If you accumulated enough demerits, privileges were revoked, and eventually you were expelled, shipped, as it was called. The document we kept is a demerit slip, pre-printed with a list of some of the more common infractions. 
Here are a few of my favorites. There's a whole list of, uh, I think there are 93 different infractions. I don't think all of them are on here, but many of them are across the bottom. Here are a few of the more ridiculous ones. Failure to pass room inspection. Disregarding a do not disturb sign. A breach of dress, minor and major. And I'll spare you the definitions of those. (laughs) Horseplay. Now there's something that never happens in a boy's dorm in college. Minor and major. In another dorm before rising bell. Absent from a meal. That never happened. (laughs) Noise disturbance. Again, that was one of those things that just really was unnecessary to even tell college students. Improper classroom behavior. It's pretty ambiguous. Studying in class. God forbid. I think it meant something else. Questionable music, the misuse of the phone, refusing to give your name. (laughs) My personal favorite, gum chewing. And then there was one that was taken off of this slip, which used to be on the slip, and it was leaving a Coke bottle in your laundry basket. There's just a few of those infractions that you'd never want to do in college. Sadly, a preoccupation with the picayunish rules is not just true at the Christian college I attended. That tendency is latent in every one of us. It's very common in the spiritual world to resort to rules in the place of God's clear word. It was true in the time of the first century in Jesus' day. There was a group that specialized in such things. They were called the Pharisees. I want you to notice Jesus' assessment of this group. Turn with me to Matthew 23. This is, as you know, Jesus' woes on the Pharisees. And in the middle of this, verse 23, he says this, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin.'" In other words, you you tithe, you give 10% of the herbs that you have, And yet you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, their system of values of what was spiritually weighty was all skewed. They took great care in doing the minor things and neglected the weightier ones. This is who they were. There's another passage that really details this. We'll get to it in a a little while in Mark chapter 7. Turn there with me now. Mark chapter 7, and look at verse 8, a particular uh, episode of the disciples not washing their hands ceremonially before they ate came up, and the Pharisees asked Jesus about it, and Jesus responds like this in verse 8. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Notice verse 13. You invalidate the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down. And this last phrase just sends shivers down my spine. And you do many things such as that. I've often prayed, Lord, if I do many things such as that, help me to see it. 
He gave them a couple of examples, and he said, you do this in a lot of different ways. This was the Pharisees. We begin to see a vivid contrast between the pure, spotless righteousness of Christ and the hypocrisy of the spiritual leaders, and they stand in stark contrast to each other. The section that we're looking at is Mark chapter 2. It begins in verse 23 and really runs down through chapter 3, verse 6. Two incidents. These are the fourth and fifth incidents in a series of confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders of the nation. They've already taken issue with Jesus' authority to forgive sins, with his eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, and last week with his refusing to fast. But the key issue, our flashpoint here in both of these incidents becomes the Sabbath. Jesus uses two separate incidents, one that occurs naturally and the other that he seems to personally arrange to enable us to see his own heart, a heart of true righteousness toward God. Now, especially as it pertains to the keeping of the Sabbath, Here's a brief outline of what we see in chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. We see the Sabbath, room for necessity, room for need. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, the Sabbath, room for mercy. You can do these things on the Sabbath. In many ways, the theme of this paragraph is found down in verse 28 of chapter 2. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So let's begin to look at the first account and the fact that there is room in the Sabbath law for need, for necessity. Let me read the passage to you. Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 23. And it happened that he, that is Jesus, was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, as you look at that brief account, it's obvious that there's the question of the Pharisees followed by Jesus' answer. So, let's look first at the question, the question that really isn't a question. The Pharisees are making a point to Jesus. It says in verse 23, and it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Now, realize at this point, we're about a year and a half into Jesus' ministry at the point that we're reading here. The first full year of his ministry, there was a wave of public favor. Crowds were seeking him out. They loved Jesus. There was very little negative about him at all. But now things have begun to turn. First with the leaders, and as we'll see later with the people. Between Mark chapter 2 verse 22, where we left off last time, and Mark chapter 2 verse 23, in the white space between those two verses, we find out from the other Gospels that several months pass. John chapter 5 records for us what happened in the white space between those two verses. 
Jesus left Galilee and went down to Jerusalem for one of those annual feasts, one of the three annual feasts that was required for all Jewish males. Wherever you were in the land of Israel, you were required on those three occasions to head down to Jerusalem. We don't know which feast this was, but based on the timing, and we'll get into that in just a moment, either it was Passover or it was Pentecost, the the celebration that came 50 days after Passover. So we're looking at the spring or the late spring, early summer. While Jesus was there, he had an altercation with the leaders of the nation, interestingly enough, over the issue of the Sabbath. You can read about it in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Jesus, you remember, goes to the pools of Bethesda, and there he heals a man who had been sick for 38 years. And Jesus tells him to get up, take up his pallet, and carry it away. Walk. Sounds okay, doesn't it? But here's the problem. John 5, 9 says, now it was the Sabbath on that day. Notice what happens. Turn over to John chapter 5. All of this happens just before the account I just read to you in Mark's gospel. John chapter 5, he's down in Jerusalem. He's just healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. Look at verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. God works on the Sabbath. He's my father. We're equal. I'm working too didn't go over very well. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own personal father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem and things don't go well. The issue is about the Sabbath. After this confrontation, Jesus returns to Galilee And that's where we pick up the story in Mark chapter 2 and verse 23. It's probably, uh, as far as the timing goes, it's probably late spring. It's probably about the time to harvest the wheat in May or June, somewhere in that category. And here again, we learn that it's the Sabbath, according to verse 23. Jesus was passing through the grain fields and as we learned in our study of the parable of the soils, there were no fences, you remember, between the grain fields. Your property butted up against someone else's property, and the only thing marking that property line was a a small trail, large enough for the farmer and his animals and travelers to walk down. Travelers like Jesus and his disciples used those paths as well. It was evidently this particular field was near the city of Capernaum because the Pharisees don't accuse Jesus here of violating the, the, the Sabbath day's journey, you remember, which was about two-thirds of a mile. You couldn't go further than that on the Sabbath day, and so apparently it was nearby the city of, of Capernaum. We don't know why Jesus was out there, but there he was. It was near harvest time, and the trail would have been crowded. So you have this thin trail. They're walking down. The trail would have been crowded with wheat on both sides. Wheat grows to about three feet, and so it's near harvest. The heads are sticking up, and as the disciples walk along, we read they were picking the heads of grain. Matthew adds, and his disciples became hungry. So they took advantage of a first century snack. Luke 6, 1 says, now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on, the, on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, 
and then eating the grain that was left. The Old Testament law allowed this, by the way. Someone passing through someone else's field could, could assuage his hunger by taking a little bit of the, the grain that was there. Deuteronomy puts it like this, Deuteronomy 23, 25, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, you couldn't take advantage of the situation, you know, and as you walk through your neighbor's field, just happen to have my sickle with me, and, you know, you take a little extra for the afternoon. So the disciples were completely within the law in what they're doing here. But the problem was the day. It was the Sabbath. And so the Verse 24 says, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, there are a couple of interesting things to note here. First of all, the fact that there were Pharisees with Jesus on the Sabbath. There's only one reasonable explanation for that, and it grows out of the confrontation we just read about down in Jerusalem. Jesus had had over this very issue. So the leaders in Jerusalem apparently assigned a group of Pharisees to sort of track Jesus, to stay with him, and to watch for further violations, a kind of squeal squad, if you will. And immediately when they see the disciples, so you can just picture this, can't you? These guys just sort of tracking along behind Jesus, watching for a misstep. And with some degree of excitement and glee, they watch as his disciples begin to pick this grain as they walk between these, down this narrow trail between the two fields and begin to eat it. Luke says that they spoke first to the disciples. Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then they spoke to Jesus, their leader. Look, you see that in the, in the text? It, it's, a, it's a Greek word that has the idea of strong disapproval and shock. Look at what they're doing. Imagine that. See here. The Pharisees were saying to him, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, it's impossible for us to fully appreciate their concern if you don't really understand either A, what the Bible taught about the Sabbath, or B, what the Sabbath had become in first century Judaism. So I want to take just a moment to kind of fill this out for you, because I think you'll appreciate Jesus' answer a lot more if you have that background. You know, it's interesting because a lot of people talk about what does the Bible mean to me, what does the Bible mean to me? Listen, you can't ask that question. The question isn't what does the Bible mean to you, the question is what does the Bible mean? And the only way to understand the Bible is not to bring it into our times, which a lot of people do, it's to go back into that time and understand what was happening so then you can bridge the gap and apply it in an appropriate way. So let's go back, as it were, and get into the minds of these first century Jews so we can understand what's happening here. First of all, let's get a biblical perspective on the Sabbath because this isn't something we think about a lot. The Hebrew word is Shabbat. It's used most often to refer to the seventh day of the week, of a seven-day week. It probably comes from a Hebrew word that means to cease. So it's the day of ceasing, the day on which all work stops. It was based on the week of creation, according to Genesis chapter 2, and Exodus 20 refers back to Genesis 2, when God rested on the seventh day. By the way, even the wording of Genesis flows into this this command because it determined when the Sabbath began and when it ended. You remember the wording in the creation account? It says it was evening and morning 
the first day. It was evening and morning the second day. So the Jews said, obviously God intended us then to mark the days from sunset to sunset. So the Sabbath began at sunset on Friday evening and morning and ended at sunset on Saturday. That was the mark of the Sabbath. So it ended at sundown on Friday, or excuse me, began at sundown on Friday and lasted through sundown on Saturday. Now, it appears that apparently the keeping of the Sabbath preceded, and I double worded there, preceded, preceded the Ten Commandments. All right, in other words, there seemed to have been some understanding in the Jewish mind before the Ten Commandments were given that the seventh day was to be set apart. You can read about that in Exodus 16, and I put the references there. I'm not going to take you there. But there seems to have been an understanding that the seventh day was to be separate. It was to be not a work day, and it specifically comes in with the manna in Exodus 16. So that's an interesting little study, a little sidelight. But the main thing that we know about Shabbat is that it was ordered in the fourth commandment of the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments. It's the longest of the Ten Commandments, and we're given two reasons for the Sabbath in the Scripture. Reason number one is God's example at creation. In Exodus chapter 20, we read, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, because of what God did, his own example in creation. He created for six days, the seventh day he rested. Therefore, you're to work for six days, and you're to rest on the seventh day. There's another reason given in Scripture, though, and that's God's deliverance from Egypt. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, it says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So there's this sort of dual purpose behind the Shabbat. It was a reminder to the children of Israel of God's creation. They were to reflect on creation. If you want to keep the Sabbath, by the way, there's a good way to do it. Let it be a reminder of God as creator. And it was also a reminder of God as redeemer, that he redeemed his people from Israel. Specifically, Shabbat was to be a sign of Israel's allegiance or loyalty to God. In Exodus 31 verse 13 we read, but as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you or who set you apart unto himself. Same thing in Ezekiel 20, verse 12. Also, I gave them my Shabbats to be a sign between me and them that they may know that I am Yahweh who set them apart to myself. Now, what was their responsibility on the Sabbath? What could they do and not do? Well, basically, it's important to understand that Shabbat was to be observed by every living being. Animals, servants, guests, and members of the household. Basically, there was no living being in your household that wasn't to observe the Sabbath. The main requirement was that there be no labor or work. He says, six days you shall work. Folks, I hate to tell you, but the Bible knows nothing of four-day or five-day work weeks. 
Six days shall you work. And most of us find ourselves doing that. And we spend time working at home, doing all the necessities of life and and then away from our home, whereas in the ancient world it would have all been sort of an ebb and flow together. Six days shall you work, but on the seventh day there was to be no labor or work. And there are a few examples of that. No gathering of manna I mentioned in Exodus 16. No kindling of a fire, Exodus 35.3. By the way, to this day the, the Jews practice Shabbat, and when you're in Israel, they take this in a variety of ways. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled The Sabbath and the Heart of God. Tom will bring you part two on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. And friend, for the Christian, eternity in the presence of God is the hope of our souls. Every day is to be faithfully lived with an eye to this glorious future hope. Join us in South Lake, Texas, February 18th through the 20th for this year's Countryside Bible Church Conference, Our Glorious Hope. Tom Pennington welcomes Steve Lawson, H.B. Charles, Philip DeCourcy, and more. Also, if you're in church leadership, please join us for the XL Ministries pre-conference Becoming Biblical Elders on February 18th, featuring Tom Pennington. Get more information and registration links at thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's the word unleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.